Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And um, I got back in the saddle uh, this week, Tyler. I've got five movies to talk about. I've actually seen seven, but two of them are related sure. to some research for an upcoming episode, uh, and so we'll talk about them there. So uh, I've got five movies. You, uh, I'm going to guess, have three. Uh, yes, <laughs> a, a, a paltry three. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. My first four movies have something in common, which is that, uh, they were released in a Blu-ray set, uh, and therefore they all star the same actor. This okay. is a film movement classics put out a set they're calling Alistair Sims school for laughter. Oh, okay. Um, I saw, I saw a couple people, uh, talking about this. So, uh, so I watched, uh, all four of these, I'm going to go in, I watched them chronologically, which is not the order they are in the, uh, in the box set, but, it, uh, uh, I'm, I'm guessing they ordered them based on their like popularity or maybe based on how much he's in them. Oh, sure. Um, but uh, I started with the last one in the set, which is the first chronologically, which is the best film in the set. It's 1947's Hue and Cry, which is directed by Charles Crichton, and it is the first Ealing comedy. Um, and it's uh, it, it has it, it's more like a kids or like boys adventure movie where uh, um, there's this uh, this this magazine that weekly news magazine no, no, not a news magazine like a rag that has like fun detective stories and comics and games and that all the kids read right and mm-hmm. so this one kid uh this, this teen is walking down the down the street reading the latest issue of the magazine which is called trump by the way mm-hmm. um, it's very funny that the word trump is all over this movie and like the 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 kid goes to like the the newsstand and goes give us a trump uh, <laughs> <laughs> um uh Sounds kind of inappropriate, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but so he's walking the street reading this like this this uh, crime story, and he looks he looks up and he sees specific things from the crime story happening in his neighborhood, even though it's a fictional story. Mm-hmm. And he goes to the police, and they <laughs> they don't believe him because this is what happened in movies like this. Uh, and so then they go decide to go to the guy who writes these stories every week played by Alistair Sim and he looks at it and he's like wait this isn't what I published so they find out there's some sort of this is what I send in to be published so they find out there's some sort of like criminal conspiracy going on and the criminals are sending messages to one another via stories in in Trump Um, and so all the like sort of neighborhood kids band together to take down this this group of criminals so it's it's like a fun uh, you know a a fun mystery uh, a fun adventure has kids you know cracking codes and and traveling through the sewers of of London to 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 uh, try and uh, try and uh, best the these villains Uh, it's a yeah it's a it's a fun goofy uh, silly movie. Um, it, it has some, uh, you know, Charles Crichton, uh, who would go on to do much later in life, go on to do a fish called Wanda. Yeah. Um, he also did has, the, La- the lavender Hill mob, which is a wonderful film. So yeah, he, um, he, uh, 
he, he put some nice, some nice touches, uh, in there. Some, there, there's a great, like, uh, uh, almost sort of horror movie type of, uh, part when they first go to see Alistair Sim, who's like this, this recluse, this hermit pulls up in his apartment and writes and, and then mails the, puts the, puts the stories in the post. Um, and as they're going up, it's like these, the shadow, it's like the one, a spiral staircase to his, uh, his, his flat, I guess. And, um, the, so the, and it's at night and there's a, uh, a cat like gets out and like is walking down the staircase and you see the shadow of the cat, like real big on, on the wall. And they hear what we later realize is Alistair Sim's character playing back his own dictation of his upcoming story. But it sounds like they're hearing a murder about to happen. Got it. Um, there's, there's just like, there's a lot of fun little moments. It was definitely, uh, even though it was probably the least of Alistair Sim, it's really a movie about these kids. And Alistair Sim has like two or three scenes really. Um, even though it's the least uh, at least Alistair Sim, it's the best movie in the Alistair Sim box. Okay. Hue and Cry. Hue and Cry. Okay. So do you want to do... Let's see. If I... I'm, no, if... Uh, if we just go back and forth, then yeah, you've got just, one on either side. That's right. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I watched a movie and I, I reviewed it for the site. Uh, it is called Spaceship Earth. It's directed by Matt Wolf. It is a documentary about Biosphere 2, uh, which this was a whole thing that happened in 1991. Uh, I, it was a story I knew a little bit about in which uh, a, a group of scientists and very ambitious, uh, eco-conscious uh, millionaires and billionaires in some cases uh, paid to create this giant uh, uh, enclosed ecosystem in Arizona. And the idea was, Hey, we are destroying this earth. And so eventually we're probably going to wind up living in space. And is it possible to essentially transfer the earth's ecosystem into, into another place and have it sustain itself? That was the idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so then these eight, uh, are they called like, not like, not bio, not uh, like biospherians or something like that. But okay. anyway, it's eight, it's eight uh, scientists. They would go in and they would live in this enclosure for two years. And they have, I mean, it really is amazing. Uh, it's now run by the university of Arizona. I think you can go and visit it. I think I would like to, it sounds really fun because they have like, Hey, in this section, it is essentially the Sahara in this section. It is a rainforest and they, they went all around the world gathering up animals to introduce into this ecosystem. How big is it? Uh, I don't know the exact, uh, you know, square footage, but it's very, very large. Okay. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, I was looking up, thankfully this is a thing that you can find a lot of documentation on. Um, and so the the experiment itself went it w was interesting um but also they discovered that okay well in this enclosed ecosystem like certain crops aren't growing as quickly as we'd like uh and 
the air is not replenishing as quickly as we'd like. And so like a lot of, they started experiencing like shortness of breath and all that sort of thing. And I don't want to go too far into it because uh, the story, the, the film is interesting insofar as the way it just tells this story of this strange little experiment. And I say little, not only was it very expensive, but it got worldwide coverage. Um, you know, people would actually well, travel. They made that other documentary about it, Biodome. <laughs> You know, I had to say, I've got to say that like for people of our generation, the Mm -hmm. first place their mind is going to go when they hear about this is Biodome, which makes me like, I want to, some of the, uh, many of the people involved in the, in the project are are still alive. I almost want to email and say, I'm so sorry. The only, the first thing I thought of when I heard about this huge endeavor of yours was Biodome starring Polly Shore. I mean, what, what year did you say the, they built the biosphere? Uh, 91. So, okay. So 96 is biodome. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure that biodome exists because this happened. Oh, undoubtedly. I think they saw uh, not unlike the, uh, the other polyshore vehicle, which somehow sounds wrong to say, uh, jury duty. It's this idea. It's like, Hey, what is a very serious situation <laughs> that a, that a character is stuck in? And, but that character is not serious. So it's like, okay, we've got jury duty. We've got, oh, he's stuck on this farm with this family. That's very uh, uptight. And then I never saw son-in-law. I I mean, I saw it at the time. I remember liking it, but what the hell did I know? I was a dumb kid. Um, Yeah, I saw Biodome. I saw jury duty and I saw in the army. Oh, is that the other one in the army now? Yeah, that's right. I saw that one. And I remember, again, I liked all of them because I was, and then there was Encino man where he was just part of a a larger ensemble there. But anyway, um, so spaceship earth, it's, it's interesting in. So like first and foremost, because it just, it, it goes pretty in depth with the telling of the story and it including like, Hey, the people that came up with this, here's where they started. They didn't start as scientists. They started as like, uh, theater people and just like hippies. And so I appreciate how in depth the, the film is researched. I think my issue is that not unlike the project itself, which came under heavy, uh, criticism from the scientific community. And they essentially, I don't think they phrased it this way, but they essentially said like this experiment lacks depth it is a very unscientific experiment. It's like, it's definitely capturing people's imaginations, but this is not, this can't be replicated. Like this is literally just uh, a, a big fun, imaginative scientific, you know, a, a eco minded experiment, but you, what can you really learn from it? So like that was, and similarly, that's how I feel about the film. It gets the director, I think it's so caught up in just the fact of all of this, which admittedly is interesting. Um, and it is a very watchable film in that regard, but don't, I would say don't really expect to come out of it with any kind of deeper understanding mm. of what they were trying to do or of our, our ecosystem or anything like that. It starts to tie it into discussions about climate change, which is all, that's all well and good. That's fine. But it also feels a little uh, too little too late where at the end they're like, Oh shit, we have to try to make this relevant to the viewer's life in some way. Okay. I think we've got it. Um, 
that and then the late addition of Steve Bannon, oddly enough, who wow. was involved in the project in sort of a late stage. Um, so, yeah, it just... It, it, I'd say the film is super, it's superficially interesting, but it is extremely interesting in that regard. So I'd say go in looking to find a really engaging story and then maybe, and, and maybe it's meant to inspire you to do the research on your own. Uh, but also you kind of have to, if you want any, any real depth uh, from the film, but it's again, still interesting. All right. Uh, next up for me in the Alistair Sim box uh, is Laughter in Paradise from 1951, which um, bears a, a title card that is introducing Audrey Hepburn. Hmm. Uh, she was she has she's in two very very brief scenes um, in in this movie, and um, also. From what I've looked at, this is actually she. She was in five movies that were released in 1951. Two of them were released before this one, so I'm not sure. Maybe she filmed this one first. I don't know. I don't know where they get off going with the uh, the introducing. I'm not sure what the legality is of using an introducing using credit. But um, anyway, that's uh, not the, that's only the most interesting bit of trivia about the movie. It's not actually uh, interesting, and she's. Um, a part of the story at all she's just a a, a cigarette girl at a club that we see twice because uh, the caddish character hits on her twice um anyway uh the uh the the premise of the movie is going to make it sound way more fun than it is unfortunately uh and and uh old man who was uh very wealthy uh and very much a renowned prankster dies and um, he leaves his four uh, living uh, descendants, I guess, a large sum of money each, but only if they can uh, uh, accomplish certain tasks that are very much not in their, uh, 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 according to their personalities, like the, uh, the mean rich, like the, the, mean, the mean woman, uh, the mean like uh, elitist woman has to... Uh, um, take it as a, a housekeeper and keep it for a month. And uh, um, well, uh, the the sort of milk toast guy has to uh, um, get arrested and spend thirty days in jail. Um, the cad has to find someone to marry him. Uh, so it's and it, so it sounds like it should be a bunch of shenanigans and hijinks, but uh, it plays it way too straight faced. And so mm. it actually is kind of dull. Um, Alistair Sim is the, 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 the meek sort of milk toast uh, guy. Once again, playing a writer weirdly um, in this case, he's so as not to sully the good name of his family. He lives as a retired, uh, uh, I can't remember what his rank was, but retired captain or something in the army and secretly makes his money writing sort of like uh trashy, like, you know, dime store, uh, what, what is it? Dime store paperback? Dime store dime novels? Store. Yeah. 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 That, that sort of, that sort of thing under a, a variety of pseudonyms. Um, it's fun. And then the other, um, um, the, the, the other most, most interesting uh, actor. Well, the, the cast is, is not bad because you've got Alistair Sim. Uh, I don't really know who Faye Compton is, but she plays the uh, elite, the, the mean lady who has to become uh, uh, 
uh, a housekeeper. Guy Middleton plays the cat, the, the caddish uh, guy. Um, and then uh, George Cole um, uh, plays um, the, uh, another, another brother, the youngest of them. And, and uh, both Guy Middleton and George Cole will show up in the next movie that I watched. Um, but uh, interesting tidbit, I guess, that uh, another 1951 movie with Alistair Sim is maybe the thing that Alistair Sim stateside is best known for, which is playing Scrooge in the 1951, a Christmas right. Carol. Right. And George Cole played young Scrooge in oh. the, uh, uh, ghost of Christmas past section. But it's interesting. Yeah. Alistair Sim, I think to American audiences who know, I've never, I've never seen that Christmas Carol. That's, that's what I, when I hear the name Alistair Sim, I'm like, Oh, he's one of the guys who played Scrooge, but he's apparently in the UK much, much better known as a comedic actor. Yeah. And I mean, I, uh, I think the only thing I've actually seen him in, and I might be wrong about this, um, is a movie that maybe is part of, I don't know if this, if it's actually part of, uh, of this set, which is school for scoundrels. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be talking about it a little bit. Uh, all right. We'll talk about it then. Um, okay. So next for me, speaking of, uh, you know, the, the, uh, sordid world of writing, uh, this is a, a, a movie that uh, I watched when it, it, it's 11 years old now. I saw it when it first came out. Uh, Jen was watching it the other day and fairly early on, I decided to join her and I remembered how much I loved it. And that is uh, Nora Ephron's uh, Julie and Julia um, about Julie Powell, who is a blogger uh, in the early 2000s and is trying to be a writer and is, isn't really sure how to go about it and sort of feels like a narcissist because it's, it's, it's 2003. So it's like she starts a blog and she and her husband are having these debates about being a blogger and how narcissistic it is. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> yeah, I guess in the early days, uh, undoubtedly that was the conversation. I mean, people said it about Twitter. They say it about Instagram. They certainly said it about podcasting, which is like, how can you possibly think you are so interesting that people should read what you have to say or think or whatever? Anyway, so that's the Julie of the title. And then Julia is Julia Child played marvelously by Meryl Streep, um, nominated for Best Actress, should have won lost to Sandra Bullock for the blind side. Sandra Bullock, also a great actress in a very, very subpar movie. Um, But, uh, and so it just cuts back and forth because Julie Powell has decided that her blog will be devoted to cooking every recipe in Julia Child's book in one year and then just blogging about it. And so it cuts back and forth between the two. And what, what I love about it from the structure, it's so fascinating that, it it doesn't go back to like when Julia Child like had her show and all of that. It goes back to when she and her husband are living in in Paris and are and she's trying to figure out something to do. You know, uh, her husband has a government job and she decides she loves French cuisine and she'd love to introduce it to uh, Americans. And that's basically it. So she works with uh, these other uh, authors to put together this cookbook. And so like the, as far as her story, it ends with her success, it, it, uh, with her initial success um, with uh, mastering the art of French cooking. Uh, 
the last shot of the film is her getting her first official printed copy in the mail and being so excited about it. Um, and so this idea that so many people, uh, the film was not super well received when it came out. It wasn't, you know, people didn't hate it, but everyone said like, oh, well, the Julia Child stuff is more interesting than the Julie Powell stuff. And undoubtedly that is true because Julia Child is a bigger character and we already know about her success. But to me, Julie Powell is like, yeah, she's less interesting because it's, she's what we know. She's modern day. She's a, she's on the internet and we all know where the internet would go after that. Uh, and so it's, there's nothing exotic there, but what the film is ultimately saying is like, yeah. And Julia child had to start somewhere. Julie Powell started somewhere. Everyone starts somewhere. Mm. And then they just decide to do this thing, whatever that thing is, and then just keep doing it even when they have their own doubts. And to me, it's tremendously inspiring. Um, and it also ex explores this idea that like, in order to do anything, you will need some type of support system. In this case, they both have very understanding husbands, but um, one of them, Julia Child's husband is played by Stanley Tucci. It is one of my favorite performances of his, mm -hmm. the, the depiction of their marriage. Like Jen and I afterwards, we had a, a serious conversation in which I was like, how do we have a marriage? How can we have a marriage like that? I realized that we are only, that we're watching a, a dramatic representation of that, but by all accounts, their marriage was loving and supportive. And it's like, what, how can we do that? You know? And it's just a film that like, really, it doesn't pull its punches. It sees where these characters are flawed, sees where they can be a little bit narcissistic. Um, while also acknowledging that like, yeah, anybody who's ever done anything that is presentational probably is a little bit narcissistic to a certain extent. And if it weren't for that, then nothing would ever get done uh, creatively. And so it really is, so many people got so focused on like, well, I like the story of Julia Child. It's like, no, you're thinking about this the wrong way. This is about more than just her, as wonderful as she is. This is about the, the idea that creativity and and inspiration can beget creativity and, and inspiration. And if you really embrace that, then this film itself and the success of Julie Powell can also inspire somebody. And uh, I just, I cannot, I love the movie. I mm. really do. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. Great performances all around. Amy Adams plays Julie Powell. Chris Messina plays her husband. Uh, and yeah, uh, it, it's a shame that it was not, that it was not championed at the time uh, outside of Meryl Streep's performance, because it really does deserve to be talked about more, especially when we talk about movies like uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood where Mr. Rogers is sharing the screen with somebody else essentially. And it's not all about him. I feel like this film is a very good companion film to that. So yeah, listeners, if you haven't seen it and it's a good bet, you haven't check it out. Uh, all right. Next up in my uh, tour of the works of Alistair Sim is 1954's The Bells of St. Trinian's, um, okay. which is the first one in the set, I think, because it was massively successful uh, at the mm -hmm. time uh, in, in the UK. Um, now, if you're picturing the title like The Bells of St. Mary's, it's not. It's Bells, B-E-L-L-E-S, you know, beautiful. Uh, sure. Beauties, the beauties of St. Trinian's. Uh, it's kind of an ironic uh, title. It takes place at an all-girls boarding school. This movie is very much, very, very much a precursor 
to things like Animal House or Real Genius or whatever, mm. but except except for instead of college boys, it's you know uh, girls mostly who mm. are complete terrors. It's also like a precursor to the Bad News Bears. I feel like it's a very influential movie. Mm. It's just a bummer that it's not better. It's weird that it like it's and maybe if I hadn't seen all the things that I named, I would be like, oh, this is so crazy. Like how sure. uh, you know these. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got a 12, 13 year old girls, uh, where their science class at school is literally, uh, brewing up bootleg gin and selling it to, uh, uh, to a guy named Flash Harry, who's played by George Cole again, by the way, um, Alistair Sim plays the headmistress of the, of the, uh, of the school. So it's Alistair Sim in drag for the entire movie. And then he also plays the headmistress's brother who is the father of one of the uh, most delinquent girls at the, uh, 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 at the school. Um, it's, it's all very silly. And I wish it were, uh, I wish there were a little more uh, uh, verve to it. Maybe yeah. um, it's not, yeah, nothing, none of the movies in, in this set are, are terrible. Um, but it also just, it seems uh, I don't know why other than like, it's funny to, for men to dress as women. I don't know why Alistair Sim is playing yeah. the, the lead, but this was such a successful movie that there were many, many sequels. Apparently Alistair Sim very briefly appears in the second one and never showed up again in them. Um, but he's replaced uh, by uh, William Devane. <laughs> no, I think they just wrote the character out. Um, okay. But in, I think 2007, there was a remake that has a pretty stellar cast, actually, and Rupert Everett <laughs> plays uh, the uh, both the Alistair Sim. Oh wow! So it's a full-on and, remake. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, uh, Russell Brand plays the George Cole role. He plays Flash Harry, hmm. um, uh, and they made a sequel to that too. So I, I guess this is a very, I guess in the UK this is a very popular series, and this is the one that kicked it off. Um, I would say it's uh, director Frank Launder. I don't know much of his stuff as a director. He's better known as a screenwriter. He wrote the lady vanishes uh, among other things. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's his, his sharpest moment. There's some, there's some, I guess some okay stuff, uh, but um, it's more, it, it feels like it's more interesting as an historical document of a movie that not only spawned, uh, and I guess was based on a, a popular comic strip. Um, Okay. Um, and then not only spawned a uh, decades-long running um, uh, uh, film franchise, but also seems to have been uh, uh, pretty influential in like all the other things that I that I named. What I think is funny is because I'm, I'm looking at the the 2000 uh, Saint Trinian's uh, 2007, ID, right? 2007. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, page and. Um, and it's just, it, you know, in this, it makes me wonder, like, is it one of those things where it's just, it's just a foregone conclusion that if, whether it be a movie or a play, if you're playing Captain Hook, you're playing Mr. Darling as well. Sure. Um, yeah. And so it's just like, all right, we're, it's, it's Trinian's time. So you know what that means? Uh, if you're playing, uh, what is it? Camilla something or other, at least in the remake, uh, then you're also playing Carnaby. Carnaby Fritton. Oh boy, what a ridiculous <laughs> name. Um, 
Yeah. So. Oh, I didn't even mention maybe part of the reason I'm a little bit sour on it is that, uh, the plot device has to do with the, um, leader of a fictional a very wealthy prince of a fictional like middle eastern country since his daughter there and so you've got like a little girl in like essentially brown face i guess i'm not sure if brown face is the right term for for that but with her face painted so that's uh definitely uncomfortable and i have to assume that performance uh and the way that character is handled is incredibly nuanced uh and sensitive and all of that uh no most of she's mostly just a plot device most of the mm. jokes about that family are about her father also an actor with his face painted having so many wives that he oh, a doesn't know which of his wives is this girl's mother and b missed <laughs> mistakes another woman at his palace for one of his wives who just happens to be there on another uh uh errand so yeah not very sensitive the concept of that is funny if it weren't so rooted in yeah, in this yeah. other thing uh okay so this is another rewatch but this movie you know julie and julie i saw 10 years ago or so uh this movie it's probably been 20 years and that is william friedkin's the french connection um, this is a movie that I, that we watched for my, uh, my film history class in which we were talking about new Hollywood. And, uh, when's the last time you saw it? Uh, the French connection, probably, um, when you and I lived t- together, uh, in Chicago. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so I guess for me, it was less than, less than 20 years, but certainly it's been a while. Um, cause I think, I think you and I might have watched it together. I think I saw it in high school and then I watched it. I think I bought it on DVD and I think uh, while you and I were living together. But anyway, weirdly, I know I'm not saying what the movie, one of the other movies I watched that I'm not talking about uh, today has a scene in which a character is watching the French connection. I just watched that yesterday. Really? Oh, yeah. that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, what, you know, what's really interesting is that when I first saw the French connection in high school, I, I didn't get it. Um, and because to me, it's like, this is like th- this movie, won best actor, this movie, won best screenplay. W- why? It's just a long chase movie in one way or another. Like, and when you watch it again, like you definitely see, I mean, the, one of the early scenes is uh, Gene Hackman dressed up like Santa Claus uh, undercover and uh, Roy Scheider undercover is like a hot dog vendor. And then they have to chase after someone and they just, you know, we're, we're two or three minutes in and these guys are already running after a guy in the streets of New York and they, and he is running faster than they are, but they are not stopping. And that I think is what I came to realize is what the film is really about is just, just as much like when we think of movies about obsession, we tend to think of movies that I, that visually are kind of visually and tonally maybe a little bit meditative like they're very still and intense you know mm-hmm. uh, even something like a like a vertigo uh certainly there are virtuosic uh, elements to it but uh but i think that is a very that is a very quiet and a very slow film whereas uh the french connection is just as much if not more about obsession and in this case the obsession just drives the main character 
and and his partner to a lesser extent, but the main character, it just continually drives him forward to such an extent. It's like, you cannot get away from this man. He will not stop. Like the, the of course there's the, 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 the climactic and not literally the climax of the film, but the, 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 the sequence that everybody really thinks about with the French connection, which is uh, this guy has tried to, uh, this assassin has tried to kill Popeye Doyle and then hops a, a, an elevated train and Doyle grabs somebody's car and just follows the train. Now on one hand, it's like, well, it's, we know where it's headed. The tracks are right there, but you have to keep pace with it, which means endangering a lot of people. <laughs> and then, uh, and that's the thing is the, the, the would-be assassin finally gets, gets off the train having killed a number of people on the train itself and is going to like, you know, he gets off the train, is going to go down the platform and there at the bottom of the stairs is fucking Popeye Doyle. And it's just like, and the look on the actor's face is like, wait, what? It, you know, like if, you, if your friend ever took the stairs while you took the elevator and then the purse and then they like run and they're waiting for you when you get off the elevator as like a fun prank or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's like that, except it just speaks to the almost off-putting stubbornness and obsession of the Gene Hackman character. And it, it is the film itself, just like the main character, is so single-minded and so committed that William Friedkin is, is not saying like, Hey, let's try and have some quiet moments where the character talks about his motivation. No, no, no. That's not how this character works. And that's not how this movie works. And between that, and I think it's beautifully shot, wonderfully edited. It we really get a sense of New York at the time. And it really just feels like, like just such a lived in movie, albeit it's a, it's a world you don't really want to live in, but you really get a sense of the world of, of, the, of the main character. And as time has gone on, I've come to really appreciate and, tr and, and certainly in watching it this time uh, more so than ever, I, I treasure this movie and William Friedkin's willingness to just let the, the nature of his main character dictate every other element of the film. Uh, even if some people might consider it a detriment. Um, and Boy, I, uh, I have it on Blu-ray. I haven't watched it uh, in a while, but I'm glad I do um, because we watched it because of the nature of this. We had to watch like a streaming version and it looked fine, you know, but streaming is in this case was not as uh, it didn't look it didn't look clear in its grittiness, if that makes any kind of sense. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and so like sure. Yeah. So it's, it's a film that like, I, I immediately want to watch it again, having watched it at this point two days ago and just yeah, watching I it, watch on it a, again now. What was that? I said, you're making me want to watch it again. Yeah. And like, and I want to watch it on like my bigger screen in my living room and, Oh, it's, I'm oh, so yeah. happy I rewatched it because, and I'm, I'm happy that I kind of forced myself to rewatch it as a function of this class. My students did not particularly care for it, but what the hell I didn't, I didn't care for it either when I was that age. Yeah, they're a bunch of idiots. Yeah. Um, you really, uh, you really lucked out getting that, that new big TV right before, uh, right before all this, that was a good, it, yes. that was a good move. Um, all right. So once again, we're bad at math and I have two left. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, as as we hinted at before, the next one, uh, the final one in my uh, Alistair Sim uh, marathon is 1960s School for Scoundrels, uh, directed by Robert Hamer. Speaking of um, 
Ealing comedies. This is not a officially this is not an Ealing comedy. Robert Hamer directed uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is arguably the best Ealing comedy. Um, I think it's either that or Lavender Hill Mob. Um, uh, and I've never seen Lavender Hill Mob, so uh, my favorite is Kind Hearts and Coronets. <laughs> um, but um, so you've seen School for Scoundrels, and this is yeah. uh, this is definitely a situation in which. Because uh, I, I don't think School for Scandals is any less dumb than The Bells of St. Trinian's, but Robert Hamer's a very good director. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it definitely feels uh, uh, more, more considered. It moves better. It, it, uh, um, it, it's more, it's more of what's what I'm looking for. Not necessarily fleshed out, but it, it, it doesn't seem to have any, uh, uh, space between the, 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 the seams, you know, it, it, it feels more fully realized. Well, of course I haven't seen the yeah. other one, but it feels very fully realized partially, I think because of its cast, you've got Alistair, Alistair Sim, but then of course you also have the invaluable Terry Thomas, Terry Thomas who's, the, is, who's yeah. perfect for a movie like this, of course, yeah. he's the, if he's got the scoundrel. He's got to be in it. Yeah. Yeah. Although he's not the, uh, he doesn't go to the school. Well, maybe right. the, that might be, he ends with some interest in the school. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, Ian Carmichael, uh, plays, a uh, another milk toast, a sap who, uh, gets his girl took from him essentially by yeah. Terry Thomas and then, uh, signs up for the courses. And essentially it's essentially like, uh, uh, what was that, uh, guy who had the, the VH1 show, the, the, his name was mystery what was it called i don't was remember that, i know what you're talking, talking about, about right yeah um it's basically like here's how to it's not just about getting uh uh women but it's more it's more about like how to be uh an a quote-unquote alpha male they don't use that term yeah. in the movie but that's it's it, it, it's about like uh one-upmanship is a, a word they actually use uh mm-hmm. a lot um and so he takes these classes and comes and uh you know spoiler gets his girl back um so yeah it's real dumb <laughs> it's a really stupid premise for a movie yeah. um i don't agree with uh with it but it mostly i i feel like the movie has a, a an a an economy to it. It mostly consists of a handful of set pieces. There's like basically the, the night that Terry Thomas shows up and, uh, wins over, uh, uh, April Smith is the character's name. I can't remember the actress's name. Jeanette Scott. Uh, Jeanette Scott. Um, sorry, I have it pulled up. I know you don't like that, but, um, I don't like that, but it's okay. Um, um, and then you've got like the next morning when Ian Carmichael makes his uh, very ill-fated attempt to be more like Terry Thomas and buys a uh, overpays for a terrible jalopy of a car and then <laughs> gets his ass kicked at tennis. And then you've got this, even though it's the name of the movie, the scoundrel school for scoundrels is really just like, it's a glorified montage. It's, it's yeah. the middle section of the movie, but it's not like um, uh, the whole plot. Uh, it's more like a, uh, a three act play of Ian Carmichael, Terry Thomas and April Smith with this little montage of Ian Carmichael and Alistair Sim essentially in the middle of it. Um, and if I recall correctly, cause I haven't seen it in a few years, but I remember liking it at the time. And one of the things that I liked about it is that Alistair Sim does not play a, the characters like a big sleaze. He plays him as though he were any other like 
headmaster. Yeah. He plays him very straight, which I think is very funny. Yeah. Yeah. It it is. It's a very funny performance. Yeah. This is definitely a movie that you, like you said, benefits from casting benefits from Robert Hamer, knowing how to, how to, how to shoot stage uh, and edit and direct actors and, and, and that sort of stuff. Um, it's, I would say it's a movie that's better than it probably has any right to be. Um, I'm not eager to revisit it. I've never seen the 2006, uh, loose remake. Um, yeah, that uh, directed by uh, Oscar-nominated Todd Phillips, by the way. Yeah, did, wait, did you see it in 2006? No, I didn't, but I worked at Blockbuster at the time. Uh, and so when this film, when the 2006 version came out on DVD, we actually also got a copy of the older one. And so I was like, well, I'm not interested in this new one, but this looks fun. And so I watched it and I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, So in, but in that one which again, I haven't seen it, but in that one, Billy Bob Thornton plays the Al- Alistair Sim role yeah. and he ends up becoming the villain because then he tries, it's John, John Heder, John Heater, Heder, Heder. Um, yeah. And Billy Bob Thornton sort of like square off to get the girl. Right. Um, which I only remember that because the, the next year, Thornton was in Mr. Woodcock in which Sean William Scott, he's like, he had this like little back to back, like playing the like, uh, sleazy old man, uh, antagonist to, uh, uh, you know, mid two thousands comedy stars. It's yeah, that's about right. And then of course he was in the remake of the bad news bears, which was itself inspired of, uh, but you know, this Alistair Sim guy, he gets around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he's, he's good. Um, although he's like in a, I would say in a somewhat British character actor way and in a like comedy guy way, Alistair Sim is not, he doesn't have a marquee good looks. So right. it is an odd, like the, the, the DVD, the Blu-ray set that I have. It's, a, it's just weird to have Alistair Sim's face real big on the, <laughs> on the cover of the thing. It's not like a, yeah. a face you think of as. Uh, moving units of, of Blu-rays. <laughs> How are we going to sell this thing? Guys, I've got it. Yeah. Well, speaking of selling things, I watched a movie that is, I'm not going to make a final judgment here, but is honestly in competition for worst movie I've ever seen. Ooh. Um, and it is part of the very small, but actually uh, it's the very niche, but surprisingly robust subgenre of the late 70s and early 80s uh that is sometimes referred to as bruce exploitation it is after bruce lee died there are a lot of movies that kind of t- tried to trade on his name sure and so i watched a movie that um the film detective is putting out uh it comes out um in at the end of may on on blu-ray uh called fist of fear touch of death um and Apparently, film movement or not film, film detective uh, here. Uh, they they also put out that Ega Blu-ray, which is also a limited edition. This appears to be like their new uh, their new bread and butter is putting out limited editions of notoriously terrible movies. But at least Ega is fun. Like Fist of Fear, Touch of Death has some of, some of that just like plain old filmmaking incompetence that makes like for an MST3K style yeah. like funny. It has some of that. In fact, it has a lot of that. It also has, there's just an ugliness, I think, to it in like just a very, the, it's a Bruce exploitation movie. It takes place, it's a, 
it's a we, it's a weird narrative movie. It's semi semi mockumentary in which uh, it's um, uh, Adolf Caesar is the actor who would lo- lo- go on to be nominated for an Academy Award for a different movie. Oh um, is the sort of broadcaster or host of this uh, martial arts tournament that's happening in Madison Square Garden that will decide who is the successor to Bruce Lee's legacy. Um, and so you've got Fred Williamson, you've got Ron Van Cleef, uh, and some others whose names I already forgot. Uh, Fred Williamson was the one I knew uh, going in. Um, and so you get like little interviews with these people as themselves and then little fictionalized sort of scenes with them, either like usually they're doing one of two things. They are uh, um, impressing uh, uh, women by like, well, Fred Williamson is wakes up in bed with a, with a woman who doesn't want him to go off to the tournament, you know, because he, because yeah. uh, the five times he brought her to orgasm the night of before course. is not enough. Yeah. Or you've Does got, she say the phrase, come back to bed? <laughs> um, oh, it's, I think it's more like a don't get out of bed. Type got deal. it. Okay. Um, and then, but here's where the, some of the, what I think is kind of the ugliness comes through. There are not one, but two different scenes in which one of these uh, martial artists saves a female Central Park jogger from being raped. <laughs> Happens twice. And so it feels like this frustrated nerd, like fantasy, like wishful sure. film of fantasy. It's like, it's gross. Um, because like, yeah, the, the one like, uh, uh, the first time the woman is like, it, it, it's like a parody. The woman literally says like, what can I ever do to repay you? And then the guy like looks at the camera. It's so gross. Um, there's also, oh, yeah, thank God she was saved from that uh, rapist. Yeah. By this other type of rapist. <laughs> um, and then uh, the middle part of the movie is a completely fictionalized life story of Bruce Lee using clips from a previous Bruce Lee movie and another movie in which, and here's another thing that like just baffles me. You'd think that someone who cared this much about Bruce Lee and about martial arts would know what they are, but the word karate is used for every martial art. Of course. Even though Bruce Lee was Chinese, karate is Japanese. Uh, there's talk about in this fictionalized backstory about Bruce Lee's father being a famous samurai. Again, not a Chinese thing. <laughs> That's a Japanese thing. The movie has no, makes no differentiation between yeah. these different, these different cultures. It's so dumb. Uh, it's so poorly made. It does, I don't understand. I don't understand why uh, this guy got the money to 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 make it there's also this whole other backstory that is never really resolved about um like a conspiracy theory about how bruce lee died because he was getting too close to some sort of like ancient karate secret or something like he was murdered it's it's really really bad and really really dumb and unfortunately it's not even like ega like something that you can kind of right uh which, by the way, we had a. Uh, I can't believe have we never done an episode on the idea of so bad it's good, or have we? Uh, I sort of did an episode. Yes, 
you weren't there though. It was me and Kyle Anderson. Uh, but that was okay. many, that was many years. Cause ago. we had a, we had a listener send us an email, uh, suggesting that as a topic. Yeah. Um, and it is worth talking about cause there are movies like Ega that I have to admit I enjoy watching. Yeah. Uh, um, but, uh, anyway, yeah. Fist of fear, touch of death. I'm sorry, but, uh, it's not worth it. 